Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Last week, we got into the very messy and sometimes complicated pop culture of the teen girl via Pixar's Turning Red. And if you recall, during that episode, we touched very briefly on boy bands that as a kind of core tenant of this particular subsect of pop culture. Well... In the weeks since we've last chatted, I have now re-entered my boy band era. And so, that's what we're here to talk about today. No, we're not talking about my boy band era specifically, but we're just talking about them in general. Because they're actually kind of fascinating to think about when you get into it. And I know that some of you may be moaning and groaning at the subject matter, but I think if you enjoy how music changes over time, or just enjoy like a deep dive into a particular group of pop Americana, then I think you'll find something interesting here. Or you can just listen to the dulcet tones of my voice for 30, 20, I don't know, I don't know how long this podcast is going to be at this point. You can just listen to me. All that works for me. But if that sounds good to you, Let's get started. Bubblegum pop music, a thorn in the side of some music fans and a benchmark of excellence for others. The foundation artists of the subgenre, so Britney Spears, NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, and others, were easy punching bags for music critics and other genre artists alike for their cookie cutter lyrics and safe aesthetic. However, one can draw that bubblegum pop was formed in the image of the American pop music landscape. In this day and age, the public deems this section of pop music as juvenile and as a phase that everyone goes through that they'll eventually graduate to a more mature form of music. While certain acts like solo bubblegum pop artists can be viewed through a universally accepted lens, one facet of the subgenre goes through the proverbial ringer, the boy band. Now, when anyone utters the name of a popular boy band, so Backstreet Boys and Sync One Direction, they are immediately transfixed with the same mental picture and probably a sigh of disapproval, even though I Want It That Way holds a consistent spot on their workout playlist. The sound of screaming teenage girls, interviews that ask non-offensive questions that reveal just enough to keep their fans guessing, and the songs with perfectly romantic lyrics that are ambiguous in their intention, but perfectly tailored for each and every one of their fans. These are the societal elements that are connected to all boy bands, not any specific group. So to begin, 
The earliest incarnations of the boy bands weren't what the general public would even consider to be boy bands at all. In fact, these groups were probably best labeled as male pop vocal groups. They dressed well, sang in close harmonies, and could be closely connected to the crooners of the time, like Perry Cuomo and Dean Martin. There was no flashy choreography, no screaming fans. It was really just focusing on the music. However, the general consensus of many music historians is that the Beatles were kind of a prototype of what boy bands would soon become. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, the Beatles wrote and they played their own songs. They don't look like modern boy bands. And you're correct. Yes, the Beatles wrote and played their own songs, but the kind of foundation of the beginnings of the Beatles is what the is what kind of the boy band foundation has been laid upon. If that makes sense. So in the 50s and 60s, the teenage market had been escalated kind of by crooners and rock and roll artists at the time who brought on the screaming and crying preteens with their personality, their good looks and dance moves. It's important to note that the idea of pop culture kind of being centered around teenagers was still relatively new around this time because up until this point, pop culture was kind of centered around families. So it's interesting that it was given to a younger demographic. However, they were solo artists and there was a potential for a pocket of the market to be isolated if fans didn't like that particular artist's personality or style. So the best way to eliminate this problem was to increase the number of personalities and styles that could cater to a larger demographic of fans. Enter the Beatles. Paul, Ringo, John, and George were the Beatles, but they were all individuals as well. And with their success brought on Beatlemania, which was a word invented specifically to describe the fandom of the group. To put in like Beatlemania into perspective, there was not one thing on this planet that didn't have one of those four guys' face or names on them. Um, they were taking over radio waves like it was no one's business. Fan hysteria was a thing. Like there's so many videos of people just like fainting and passing out just from the mere like sight of these four men. And in certain cases, they would be worshipped as if they were like deities or gods. It was wild. And also to put into perspective just how big the Beatles got around the, the time that they like came over to America, one of their first performances on the Ed Sullivan Show in February of 1964 pulled in nearly 73 million people who were watching live. That means 73 million people were watching one thing at the same time because obviously there was no DVR or recording mechanism. So towards the end of the 60s, the Beatles obviously had long since abandoned their very cookie cutter look, but they did leave behind a direct influence to groups like the Monkees. Now, the Monkees were one of the first instances of a completely corporately manufactured group, kind of created to respond to Beatlemania, much like many groups that followed after. The 70s would bring on probably the biggest stars in music and the further polishing of this boy band mold. Groups like the Jackson 5 were now able to be marketed to a larger demographic of people due to the progress of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which paved the way for a much more diverse music industry. And obviously the Jackson 5's birth Michael Jackson, and look where he took off. In the late 70s, the American public was introduced to Latin America's answer to the Jackson 5 and the Monkees, and maybe not so much the Beatles, in Menudo. They were different because it was the first group to not have its members play their own songs. Up until this point, pretty much any 
any group that was considered to be kind of a primordial boy band had a couple of members who were actually playing the music that was being sung. This characteristic would become indicative of what the American public would probably consider to be a true boy band, and they were the first incarnation of what became the foundation for boy bands of the 80s and 90s. Menudo reached the peak of their success in the 80s, though they found some success after the 1980s. The group, which consisted of a rotating lineup of members, which also included a young Ricky Martin, never had too much staying power in the U.S., but they did pave the way for the top groups of the 80s. New Edition and New Kids on the Block. So while Menudo were hottest with more Latin American audiences, these two groups took America by storm. New Edition, a group from Boston, took the model that Menudo used, but added the layer of consistent members. They brought about a cool aesthetic and R&B music that was a welcome change to the traditional pop sound. Their hits, Candy Girl and Mr. Telephone Man, absolutely swept the charts. I know you've heard both of these songs before. Similarly to Menudo, New Edition catered their music to minority audiences. Unlike in the 70s when the race lines were blurred, the 80s brought about groups that had national success, but also success within their own racial groups. Additionally, there was a growth in multiple groups being formed and managed by one person. Thus was the case with New Edition and New Kids on the Block. Music producer Maurice Starr was credited with discovering New Edition, and he soon left them in the mid-80s. After departing from the group, he went on to discover New Kids on the Block, giving them a similar look and sound to New Edition. Though, New Kids on the Block was just a group of white boys. This trend of producers managing multiple groups continued well into the 1990s. And speaking of the 1990s, the 90s is probably the decade that is best associated with the boy band. The model for a successful group had been tested and perfected, and now there was an extreme saturation of the market. Though there were dozens of groups that had some hits, a lot of one-hit wonders, all really good songs, but you probably can't name every single boy band that came out during the 90s. The biggest groups in the subgenre came from this era, so you got the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and Boys to Men. All three of these groups created a fun and fast and harmonious style that infused the best of the groups that had come before them. However, there was an interesting split that occurred between Boys to Men and the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, which served as another benchmark in a shifting market. While teenagers, mainly tweens and teeny boppers, dominated the pop music industry as far as being kind of the primary market, the 90s introduced another dominant market, which was 18 to 25-year-olds. The tweens that were fans of New Edition, or the Osmonds in certain cases, were growing up, and they still enjoyed this type of music. So this decade marked a resurgence in a more sensual male pop vocal group, like I mentioned earlier. An example of this was the transformation of boys to men. This group began as the typical boy band. They sang in close harmony, they dressed identically, they had really fun choreography, and they were discovered by another boy band talent, that of Michael Bivens of New Edition. With hits like Motown Philly and Enter the Road, this group held many positions on the top of the charts and were following a similar path to their producer's group. But they successfully matured their look and musical style. They kind of began to move towards more mature and sensual content matter with songs like I'll Make Love to You, which, you know, 
really not leaving anything up for interpretation with that title, which hit number one on multiple U.S. charts because it's it's a banger. It's a really good song. <laughs> Boys to Men kind of began the motifs of groups being able to graduate from the boy band to male groups, which kind of felt like a um, a, a, a rite of passage in a way. So on the other end of the spectrum, however, you had groups like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, who were the epitome of the American boy band. They followed the now-perfected boy band formula and dominated the charts well into the new millennium. Both groups had very similar origin stories and management for many years. They were both started by music mogul Lou Pearlman, who was described as a Maurice star of the 1990s. The biggest difference between these two groups and others is that they rose to success in a foreign market first, which is actually really interesting. While most groups rose to fame in the U.S. first, then moved on to success overseas, the inverse is not that uncommon. In the case of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, they began in Europe recording music with famous songwriter Max Martin. And if the name Max Martin sounds even like a shred of recognizable to you, pretty much every major song in the 90s that was like kind of riding high on the charts was written by Max Martin. The man was everywhere. This technique of exporting and importing from the U.S. to overseas made it easier to test the waters of performing and touring for new bands. The Backstreet Boys broke into the American market with their utilization of kind of an urban sound, while NSYNC used teen platforms like the Disney Channel to affix themselves in American pop music. Obviously, they used the Disney Channel because, famously, Justin Timberlake was on the Mickey Mouse Club. I think J.C. Chazé was on the Mickey Mouse Club as well. Um, so clearly they already had an in, right? As the decade came to a close, the 50 years of the boy band had been formulated, refined, and practiced many times over, which we saw with groups like Mindless Behavior and, of course, One Direction. And depending on how you categorize them, the Jonas Brothers, too. I want to note that not every single group that may have adhered to a boy band formula was super duper successful. Uh, there were a lot of groups that maybe had a couple hits here and there, but you kind of just know when that formula doesn't gel with a certain group of people. If you don't have the right conglomerate of men in this group, it's probably not going to work out for you. Um, this isn't to say that they're not as talented, but sometimes you can just know. I'm sure that there were probably a couple of groups that came to mind when I was kind of describing how the formula doesn't always work and it's not foolproof. Um, you love them. They made songs that you might have enjoyed. They might have had a song on a hit soundtrack or two. Uh, but sometimes that formula just always doesn't work, you know? <laughs> so the music of the boy band has kind of been the subject of repeated parody too, obviously, especially within comedy. Many of the most popular television shows in the past, probably 60 years, have poked fun at the repetitious nature of boy band songs that are only about love and how they have the best fans in the world. However, there are many outliers that would prove that the subject matter of boy bands is more diverse than people may think. I am thinking about a, a lot of different songs that are coming to mind, um, but one song in particular is uh, from the Backstreet Boys. Full disclosure, the Backstreet Boys are probably my favorite boy band. 
I was the kind of weird kid in, in middle school and high school who discovered the Backstreet Boys kind of long after their initial like peak, probably like 10 to 15 years. But I was I was a fan. I was a staunch fan. I was in it. Um, still am. Like I said in the last episode, I ride for the Backstreet Boys. I absolutely do. But there's one song of theirs. It's Show Me the Meaning of Being Lonely, which is a it's a sad song. And on the surface, it, it seems like kind of a love song. But the story behind it is that each of the guys kind of around the time that the song was kind of being created, they were all going through uh, certain hardships within their own lives. Um, I know Brian Literal, he had kind of a heart condition. And so he was dealing with getting heart surgery. Uh, a couple of the other members of the group had family members who had fallen ill. So it was a song kind of about like grief and pain. That was kind of painted as a like a typical like boy band love song, but it went a lot deeper than that. And I know that this is not just isolated to the Backstreet Boys. So many other groups had songs that actually were about, you know, very real things. So that's what I mean by how there there were many outliers that would kind of prove that the subject matter was a little bit more diverse than we thought. So the musical profile of these groups can kind of be broken down into two areas, the songs themselves and how they're performed. Firstly, boy bands are known for their cautious subject matter. Typically, songs would talk about a girl that they thought was attractive. So, quote, candy girl, you are my world. Or their commitment to a relationship. Quote, I do cherish you for the rest of my life. Their heartbreak. Quote, but the truth remains, you're gone. Or just a fun dance song. Quote, get down, get down, and move it all around. No matter what the subject matter of the song was, every song engaged their fans, either by giving them hope that they could be the girl that they're singing about, that they could aid their broken hearts after his breakup, or they, they could just have a fun time dancing with the group. Though the subject matter did tend to differ between black boy bands and their white counterparts. In an academic journal, writer Gail Wall describes the divide in lyrical content of the Backstreet Boys from other black boy bands. Quote, Their appeal to young girls, not to mention the many adults that deem the Backstreet Boys safe for girls' consumption, depends on a certain concerted distancing from the more sexually frank and staunchly heterosexual lyrics, dance moves, and vocalizations of the very black vocal groups that they tout as models. So there's a clear divide that's happening here. The second component of their music is in their performance. Now going back in the 50s and 60s, a definitive characteristic of boy bands was that they played their own music, like I mentioned. But kind of beginning with Menudo and onward, that characteristic became obsolete. So much so that during concerts or performances, there was a portion where some members of the band would play instruments. So like playing or writing songs was no longer a standard for the boy band. But it instead became a gimmick that said, hey, they don't just sing and dance. They also play their own instruments. Look at their talent. Now, I'm sure for sure that this was probably in response to the many critics that kind of viewed this particular group of uh, pop music as being stupid because their members don't even play their own songs because we view playing instruments as a certain authenticity, um, which makes sense. I get it. So because they're not restricted to playing their own music, 
This allowed for the performances of boy bands to be high energy and high production value experiences. I'm sure many a fan of a boy band has had the opportunity to go to a concert. And if you've been to one, you'd know that they are like, they're big deals. Like there's lights, sometimes there's pyrotechnics, there's dancing, there's confetti, there's skits sometimes. Like it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm going off of secondhand experiences. I have not myself been to a boy band concert. Still holding out hope. Uh, one day, we'll see. But I don't know. But this is, I've watched many a boy band um, like concert video. So I get the experience, but it's kind of secondhand. So I'm going to read you actually a, an email that was sent from in the year of our Lord 2000. So 22 years ago from a fan named Lauren Rockwell. And she inter- she emailed her experience to the Inquirer of all places about a NSYNC concert that was played at Synergy Field in Cincinnati. So get ready to go in a time machine of uh, 2000 era emails. Quote, okay. For all you middle-aged pop music band critic wannabes who said that the NSYNC concert in Synergy Field on July 14th was awful, get a clue. It was the best concert I've ever been to. The boys started off with a title track, No Strings Attached, written by a band member, J.C. Chazay, and then proceeded to sing eight other beautiful songs from No Strings Attached and four songs from NSYNC. It was an awesome show. They had a hilarious Who Wants to Be a Millionaire skit, and a spoof of MTV's TRL, calling it TNL. They had five costume changes and a dazzling light show with pyrotechnics and fireworks. All in all, the boys delivered an awe-inspiring performance, breaking hearts and tearing up charts. In sync forever. And it is important to note that uh, she she did not say ever, E-V-E-R. It was uh, the number four and uh, E-V-A, forever just really want to make sure you guys are are getting what she was or picking up what she was putting down in reading this it also kind of reminds me of a a core tenant of like uh of the fandom of boy bands in that you don't call them by their if you're a fan of the group once you reach a certain level of fandom within the group you don't call them like the backstreet boys or in sync or one direction you just call them the boys because they almost like become like like friends like oh the the boys are like oh my gosh the boys are so sweet like it's a very it becomes very like friendly and like familial feeling in a way once you reach a certain level of a fandom I always note that it's very interesting so each concert is comprised of intricate choreographies that have what feels like an army of background dancers um, attached to them. They're dressed in very like flashy gim- and gimmicky costuming. And they always have one moment in the show uh, that's like an unexpected encore performance where they perform like two or three songs because they're just they're so dedicated to their fans and they do it for every every leg of the tour. So How unexpected is it, really? A common thread that every boy band concert has had was that they always reached the same point every night on a tour where they would bring out some stools, never really chairs, stools. It gives that that grassroots approach. And the members of the boy band all sit and they invite one lucky fan up on stage so that they can serenade her with their top-selling ballad. Sometimes they would invite her to sing with them, 
Um, more often than not, they didn't because you can never guess what these fans were going to be, like how they were going to be acting when they were invited up on stage. I've seen many a video where there have been fans who get really into it and like are like dancing and like trying to sing with the group and like it can kind of get a little bit weird at certain points. And then I've also seen many a fan just hysterical, just crying just about to pass out and I'm like you, this poor soul just doesn't know what to do and then also I, I do see I've seen fans who kind of freeze um which very valid they they get up there and I guess their brains are not registering where they're at and they just freeze they freeze up and the song gets sung to them and then they go back to their seat <laughs> so it's like a it's a spectrum of fan experiences for this like one part of every boy band like concert that I've seen. So a 1998 newspaper article from the Janesville Gazette kind of perfectly sums up the marketing strategy of these boy bands, which is quote, love them or hate them, you can't escape boy bands these days, end quote, which is very true. Boy bands, especially of the late 80s in the entirety of the 90s, were kind of at the forefront of pop Americana. They were seen as a wholesome representation of the American pop music landscape. And as I previously mentioned, the first groups in the boy band timeline were very instrumental in perfecting and cementing this formula in regards to their beginnings and how they were marketed. So one of the largest components in the boy band marketing were the personality traits that were given to each of the members and their managerial teams. Heather Jones and Emily Maltby for Time Magazine kind of highlight what is believed to be the personality tropes that can be found in every boy band. So you have the ultra-talented dreamy heartthrob, you have the bad boy, you have the homely one, which is kind of an insult, um, you have the cute one, you have the shy one, and then you have the puppet master, which is usually played by the manager that eventually steals all their money. Um, not only did this technique allow for labels to kind of reach a larger segment of teenage fans, it also made it easier to cater to every aspect of a girl. A large point to make is that this formula can really only find success within a certain type of boy band, which is a group of about four to five racially homogenous, probably white, males. In addition, this also allowed for record labels to capitalize off of the merch tied to the brand. Because once you assign kind of an archetype or a story to each one of your members, now it's time to make some merch. There were very few items on the planet that haven't been sold with a boy band label on it. Uh, starting with Beatlemania in the 60s, Menudo in the 80s. There, I, I remember seeing like news footage of this girl kind of going through her entire Menudo collection. Her entire room was covered in Menudo merchandise. It was things that you wouldn't even imagine they would put these boys' faces on. They were on there. And I don't think that that was like an isolated incident. I think every boy band had so much merch, whether authorized or not, that people were just, they were buying up. So from like t-shirts to magazine covers to concert memorabilia, the biggest money really to be made for boy bands came from their merchandise and concert sales. Not too much their albums. So kind of with this understanding in mind, labels had to make it enticing for fans to buy all this merch, especially magazines. So they would use headlines like one from a 1999 Tiger Bee cover that read, quote, in sync, friends to the end, question mark. 
end quote, which would kind of introduce maybe some injury into, oh my gosh, is there trouble in paradise? Do the guys actually like each other? Or like one from a 1996 Teen Beat cover that claimed, quote, Jordan's sexy shirtless shot inside, quote, um, which I'm, they're talking about Jordan from New Kids on the Block. Uh, many of the publications would use sensational headlines that would lead to bland puff pieces, but they would fly off the shelves because fans constantly wanted to be in the know about their favorite member of their favorite boy band. Quote, girls want to be able to fantasize about being with each one of them. And that was the appeal. And there was a type of boy for every girl. Now, this quote was from my mom um, who grew up in the 80s and she was an avid fan of New Edition. And she kind of described that the marketing of the time was very, very strategic and it built up a fantasy for teen fans. And it's been that way pretty much from then on. The boy band rabbit hole goes so deep and it goes even deeper than I've gone here today. But I think it's a subsect of pop culture that is more influential than what it appears on the surface. So if you've made it to this point, I just want to extend a very, very warm thank you. And I hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into all things boy bands. Now, be it, I didn't even scratch like more contemporary boy bands because there's a lot to be discovered there. So if there's any interest in kind of exploring more new age boy bands, then let me know because then we can deep dive into that. Um, But forget about boy bands. If you want to know where to find me... On the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or over on Instagram. Or if Twitter is more your thing, you can find me at Hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. You can also keep up with this podcast specifically at the brand new Hi, I'm Bobby podcast on Instagram. And that is all one word. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I'm not going to remember any of that. That's too much can't handle it you throw a lot of information of boy bands at me i don't have the bandwidth to listen to this too bestie i get it and so the best thing about that is i put all that information in the description box just for you just for you of course at the end of each week's episode i'd love to hear from you In a description of each and every episode, you will have the option to send me a one-minute audio message. It could be a hot take. It could be a response to what I said. It could be a question. It's really up to you. Of course, all I ask is that you keep it respectful. I really, 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 really hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.